Well, good morning. And uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Um, now that Easter is done, um, we're back in uh, our progress through the book of Luke. Mitch, my faithful ministry assistant, is providing bigger and bigger bottles of water every Sunday. And uh, pretty soon I'll just be up here with a gallon. But I'll need it. I'll need um, the gallon will need its own stand. So, um, Luke chapter three, and we're reading uh, verses fifteen through eighteen. And it reads, "As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ." John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff... He will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that you richly and powerfully communicate the truth to us. Let our hearts be convinced and convicted of the word of God. We thank you now in your son's name. Amen. Philip of Macedon was um, a king and a great warrior in the ancient world. Uh, One of his innovations was to introduce the phalanx military formation into the region, which proved wildly successful against his enemies. You You may remember the movie Gladiator when Maximus is on the Colosseum floor with the other slaves and um, he tells them all to huddle real tight together in a rectangular formation so that they can have greater strength. Well, that's the phalanx, and it was a wildly successful uh, military strategy. And Philip of Macedon became successful in conquests and wars against his enemies. And he was known for his brilliant military strategy and the using of this technique, and he won victories all over the Mediterranean world, uh, in the city-states and in the regions around the Aegean Sea, Macedon, Thessaly, Thrace, um, and even parts of Persia. And when he conquered the town of Crenides, he changed its name to Philippi, and later the Apostle Paul would write the letter to the Philippians. And his expeditions advanced um, all the way into the Balkan regions, where he conquered places as far as Bulgaria. But he was also a great diplomat, and, and as well he negotiated alliances with other formerly hostile nations in what amounted to kind of an ancient version of NATO. And he may have been one of the most important figures of antiquity, but most people today have never heard of Philip of Macedon. His memory is obscure, 
And he remains just a footnote to history. The reason that his legacy is obscure is that it's completely eclipsed by his son, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great would go on to conquer the known world. He was so much greater than his father, even though his father was great in his own right. Most people don't know who Philip of Macedon was. Philip was a great leader, but his son was so much greater that it's hard to compare the two. We're talking this morning from Luke 3 about Jesus' greater ministry and John as the forerunner of Christ who points to Jesus. Um, John the baptizer in this section announces that in spite of you know, how popular his ministry is and speculation about who he is, John says there's one who's coming after him that's going to be greater because the one coming after him is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, not only is his ministry greater, but his baptism is greater. See, John's not a competitor with Jesus. He's a servant of the one that's coming after him. And look at verse 15. It says, The people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So here we have the crowds, they're in expectation of the Messiah, but they're not really sure what the Messiah is. They're really not sure who the Messiah is supposed to be. So there's this, there's this fuzziness over who the Messiah is going to be. They have these images from the Old Testament. Um, is he a prophet? Is he a military commander? Is he a supernatural being? Well, no one's quite certain. In fact, John himself really isn't quite certain either of exactly what the Messiah is going to be and do, but he is certain of a few things. He's certain that the Messiah's ministry will be much greater than his own. Now, they both proclaim the same message, right? John the Baptist comes proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and so does Jesus. So we might want to ask the question, well, how exactly is the Messiah's ministry to be greater? Well, we all know in retrospect, right, that the Messiah Jesus did so many greater things. But from John's point of view, he iterates two major ways that the Messiah's ministry is greater. And so we could ask the question, what's greater about Jesus? Well, if you look at verse 16, he says, And John answered them all, saying, I, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now in the ancient world, this is quite the illustration. Because only slaves were to untie the sweaty, stinky sandal strap of someone else. And it was such a demeaning task that Hebrew slaves were not even required to do it. That's how low the task of untying someone's sandal strap is. And John makes this statement, which is really powerful. We've heard it maybe, you know, many times, but for John's hearers, 
This is really quite a powerful, impactful statement. He says, I'm not even worthy, I'm not even worthy to be lower than a slave for the one that's coming after me. That's how great he is. And essentially what he's saying is, the one who's coming after me is going to be so great, there's no way to quantify it. That's essentially what he's saying. And he's, he says, next to him, I am nothing. That would have been the, the thought and the image in the mind of John's hearers. That John, who was regarded as being a powerful prophet, proclaiming the kingdom of God in the Jordan River, baptizing people, and he's declaring that next to the one coming after me, I'm nothing. That's what he's saying. John's gospel uh, records uh, John the baptizer's words regarding this event, and he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And this is also a great statement. Jesus is actually six months younger than John. They're second cousins. Mary and Elizabeth are first cousins. But it's not clear whether they even know each other. But what he's declaring is that this one that's coming after me actually existed in eternity. He's making this declaration that the Messiah is from eternity. He has no beginning and no end. Uh, One of the professors at the seminary, we have some of the seminary students here this morning, and they know this well. He tells us, he he makes us go through this... uh, this exercise when he talks about John, and he makes us go through this exercise um, where we, we all stand up and we say, I am not the Christ. And really, it's meant to um, remind us that we're just messengers, like John the Baptist, who is just pointing to Christ. The people think that John maybe is the Messiah, and he's saying, I'm not the Christ. And so we, we go through this exercise, and it's good for us because it, it lets us know that we can never try to take the place of Jesus as people in ministry and future pastors. Um, your pastor is not the Christ. Um, I'm prone to misspeak and make mistakes. In fact, um, I'm always catching myself, you know, it seems like frequently uh, misspeaking. And uh, as time goes on, um, I'll hurt you and you'll hurt me. Um, I'm not the Christ. Uh, One day I'm going to say something that offends you. And uh, so I just want to say this up front. I'm not the Christ. And I want to say to you that you're not the Christ. Um, You can never be for people what they really need. You can only point them to the one that can supply their needs. You can only point them to Jesus. Um, Every one of us needs to take inventory of the people that we're trying to be Christ for, and the people that we put in Christ's place. Your spouse is not the Christ, uh, and if you've been married some time, you've figured that out. Um, Your best friend is not the Christ. Uh, When we expect people to fulfill us, um, we kind of make an idol of them in our heart, when in reality, they were never meant to be able to do that. Human beings are sinners, Jesus is the only one who is capable of infinitely and perfectly loving us. Just take a moment and think to yourself. You can say it quietly in your own head. Jesus is the only one who is capable of infinitely and perfectly loving me. 
Only Jesus, the God-man, is qualified to nurture our souls completely. And only the Savior can provide for us lasting joy and spiritual satisfaction. In Christ, we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, and resources that can never be exhausted. And this is why John says, the one who's coming after me is greater than I. Another way Jesus' ministry is greater is John immerses his disciples in water, but the Messiah will immerse his followers in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus brings a greater baptism than John. In verse 16, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's kind of an enigmatic passage there. The Messiah, the one coming after me, John says, is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Now, if you were a literalist, that, would, that should freak you out, <laughs> that you were going to be baptized in fire. Um, but to answer this question, what does it mean, right? What's this all about? This baptism of the Holy Spirit and this baptism in fire? We have to look at a couple closely related verses that really shed some light on this statement. And they're also written by Luke. And the first is just before Jesus ascends to heaven in Luke 24 at the end of this gospel, 2449. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And Luke also writes in Acts 1 and 8, but you will receive power, there's that word again, power, once the Holy Spirit is come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, some people believe that the Holy Spirit is present if people are making a loud noise or they're clapping really loud or they're really energetic, nothing wrong with those things. But some people say, well, that's proof that the Holy Spirit is present, right? People are, you know, uh, gregarious and excited and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're There's a lot of energy, and the volume of their voice is really high. Oh, there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. But you'll notice in both of these verses that we just read, they both focus on one word. Both Luke's statement in the end of his gospel in chapter 24, and then he picks up again what the Holy Spirit does in Acts 1, and he uses this same word in both passages, and he uses the word power. Now, we might think, right, you know, we've got this image of, you know, like a superhero, you know, with electricity, you know, shooting off of our fingertips, 
right? You know, it's not that kind of power. We're not, we're not uh, breaking the laws of the universe and, you know, contravening the laws of nature and, you know, walking on water and doing those things. Well, what kind of power are we talking about? What kind of power are we talking about? Well, there's a real um, easy way for us to determine what this power is. The Holy Spirit is empowering from God for believers to be God's witnesses. It's the empowering, supernatural empowering to be witnesses of the gospel and to proclaim the truth. In fact, in John 16 and 8, it says that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So there's a real easy way to determine if someone has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do they acknowledge their sins? John 16 and 8. Do they confess Jesus as Lord? Because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and 3. And do they witness to the truth of the gospel and proclaim it? That's how you tell if someone is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not hard. It's really quite simple. So what is this baptism with fire? Right? We're talking about how not only Jesus is greater than John and his ministry is greater, but his baptism is greater. John baptizes in water, but Jesus' baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. In verse 16 and 17, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And get this, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You might be saying winnowing fork. What's a winnowing fork? Is that what I put in the dishwasher this morning with the spoons and the butter knife? A winnowing fork is like a pitchfork. You know, and what it does is you put the pitchfork into the pile of wheat and you throw the wheat in the air and around the wheat is a husk. It's a little shell. And when you throw the wheat in the air, because the wheat is heavy, the wheat falls back down. But the, the husk, the outer shell of the wheat, it blows away or it, you know, it, it separates from the wheat. And once you separate the wheat from the chaff or the husk, the husk is, isn't worth anything. It's worthless. You can't do anything with it. And the only thing it's, it's worthy of is burning. And so there's this illustration or this metaphor that John uses. And this is serious business. Because he's talking not only about salvation, but he's also talking about judgment. There's a few different views on this idea of fire. One view is that the baptism of, the, of fire refers to the cleansing and purifying work of the Spirit in the individual believer through salvation and sanctification. John Calvin puts it this way. He says that the Holy Spirit is the one who, by burning away and consuming the evil of our base appetites, kindles the flame of love in our hearts. And another theologian, Herman Bavinck, says that the baptism of fire signifies the benefits of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's one view. But the second view is that the baptism of fire could refer to 
two different results of Christ's ministry. Some accept Christ and are baptized with the Holy Spirit, but some reject him and receive judgment. And so there's this idea of fire, right? The chaff being burned with fire, the harvesters bringing the wheat into the barn and separating what is useful to what isn't useful. And here is this image, this kind of clear image of judgment. And it says that it will burn with unquenchable fire. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how the early chapters of Luke and John the Baptist's ministry were fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy of Elijah, the Elijah Elijah who was to come. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The chaff are the wicked who reject the gospel. And it says that they're burned with unquenchable and eternal fire. That might be hard words for us to hear, especially in our culture nowadays, and even in churches that believe the Bible, we try to avoid that kind of language. We don't talk about that a whole lot. But I want to assure you that this language of, of eternal fire is actually good news. Um, it's part of the gospel. In fact, look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. That verse right there, verse 18, is essentially declaring that the declaration of judgment, that the wicked would be burned with fire, is part of the proclamation of the good news. When we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not just declaring to the world that Jesus is Savior. We're also declaring that Jesus is a judge. That's not bad news. That's good news. The good news of the gospel is, yes, that Jesus saves, but also that Jesus judges. That's good news. We like to focus on one, but not talk about the other. But unless we can... Be sure that in the end, evil will be decisively overthrown. There's ultimately no good news. And so this is what this this greater ministry meant. It meant that there was a Savior coming who was also a judge. The vindication of God's holy and elect people also means the judging of the wicked. And every one of us can connect to this idea because every one of us longs for justice. We see it in our society, right? We see injustices, and it makes us uncomfortable. We see a murderer, and when that murderer is sentenced, there's something in us that is satisfied to see justice performed. When someone is hurt, and that person who who did the hurting or did the oppressing is caught, and, and, and there's... Uh, they're, they're prosecuted for their crimes, there is a sense of satisfaction that we feel, and that's not a bad thing. God has made us that way. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus sees all. He saves. He has the power to save, but his power to judge has not been removed or taken away or mitigated. He has all power to save and to judge. 
And this is why his ministry is so great. This is why he's so much greater than John. Because he's not just a preacher of righteousness, a guru, a good man. He is the Lord of glory. He's the Savior and the judge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision of Jesus, this twofold role of the Messiah. Not just as a Savior, but as a judge. And those two roles are not against each other, they're not antithetical. Lord, we thank you, O oh God, that we have escaped the judgment that we justly deserved because of the mercy of God in Jesus. Lord, we don't rejoice about judgment, but we know, O oh God, that, that you come to save and you come to judge. We know, O oh God, that you will restore justice on the earth. And Lord, we know that this earth is yours. Father, we pray now that you would help us to reflect on these things in the coming week. And that when we see injustice and we see evil and wickedness in our world, that yes, we would pray that your glory and your salvation would spread through the, through the corners of the earth, but also, oh God, that you would take your vengeance as you promised you will in your own time. And let us be comforted with the knowledge that no one will escape, oh God, except by your grace. And so we offer up thanksgiving that we have escaped by your grace, and we pray, oh God, that you would empower us with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel that others may escape the wrath to come also. We thank you, O oh God, for these things. In your son's name, amen.